Swimming and I have never been particularly good friends. My sophomore year in high school, I had to take swimming. So because I didn't want to be with the wimps, I decided I was going to take the lifeguard class. This was the class that you had to take if you wanted to work in one of the city pools uh, during the summer. And it was only because I was a cross-country runner and frankly in pretty good shape at the time that I was able to complete the last test. I mean, this test was unheard of. What, what kind of person actually thinks it would be a good idea to swim a quarter mile at one time? It was pure guts, but I wasn't the last person out of the pool. That was, that was a good thing. Another swimming incident involved a boogie board. Yes, yes, I know. You guys are surfers. I was on a boogie board, but that's the way it was. I was at a beach in San Diego, and a current was pulling me harder than I could swim out of straight towards the pier. As I became increasingly nervous, actually, I was panicking, thinking I was going to die, to my rescue came a lifeguard. And that guy with the red shorts and the long surfboard was at that moment my living and breathing and stroking hope. I grabbed his rope and held on for dear life, kicking my heart out to get away from that muscle-covered, razor-sharp pylon of death that I was being sucked into. Yes, it is true. Swimming and I have never been particularly good friends. I could tell you more near-death experiences involving wire, but the reality is that for most of us, most of the time, life kind of feels like we're swimming upstream. It's hard to breathe. Our muscles are aching, and at least I feel absurdly out of place. What you and I need is more than just a rope to hang on to, but the power and the will to kick our hearts out to get away from even greater dangers than the local pier. What we need is to learn from Jesus' friend Peter to trust our living hope. And that is what we are going to do. We're going to learn to trust our living hope from 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. He writes, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In our passage, Peter 
wisely begins with worship. He begins by blessing God. To bless God is to speak well of Him. To bless God is to speak truth into your own heart and into the hearts of those who are around you who likewise need to hear the good news of God's great mercy. Paul also favors this phrase. For example, in Ephesians 1.3, he says, Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The point that Peter and Paul are making is that God is worthy to have us speak well of Him. He is worthy of our worship because of what He has done for us. But there's more to it than that. Though not explicit here, it is good for us to speak well of or to bless or worship God because Jesus said it's what comes out of our mouths that make us clean or unclean. Do you want to increase your faith? Do you want to be able to lift your soul out of depression? Do you want to improve your relationships, not only with the people who are sitting next to you, but also with God? Begin to speak well of God. Begin to preach the good news to your heart and preach the good news to the people around you of the great things that God has done for you. Now, fortunately for us, we have a great advantage because Peter gives us a very specific reason for us to speak well of God. And we'll use this reason for our first take-home point, and that is to trust in your secure salvation. You and I must trust in our secure salvation. And take this from verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading and kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. The reason why Peter speaks well of God, the reason why he blesses God, is because God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now this is the key sentence for this whole paragraph, and so our summary statement for the sermon today comes directly from it. Trust your living hope. Trust your living hope. Because you can trust in a secure salvation, you have a living hope to trust. Because God has caused us to be born again, we can bet our lives on the fact that we have a living hope. He guarantees that living hope. Because He caused this new birth, there wasn't something that we did to earn it. So there's nothing we can do to lose it. You can trust your living hope because God brought it about. So that begs the question, what is this living hope? What, Peter, are we to bank our lives on? First of all, what we find out is that this living hope comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is actually short speak 
describing all of the saving acts of Christ. And of all these acts, his resurrection was the greatest and final proof that everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did got God's amen. And that's what I'm wanting you guys to do every once in a while too. I'm one of those amening kind of guys. So take God's example here and say amen every once in a while. Thank you. Um, and that's why Peter and Paul and other New Testament writers can consistently point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and say, see, look, it worked. God's promises are going to come through for us. Jesus' resurrection guaranteed that we can take to His promises to the bank. And this guarantee made possible that we would have an inheritance. Not an inheritance that moths can eat or rust destroy. This inheritance is imperishable. It cannot die. This inheritance is undefiled. There is nothing in it that cannot be enjoyed in God's presence. This inheritance is unfading. Your joy is not like that new car you bought and you adored it until you let your kids have their first Big Mac in it. Instead, this inheritance never loses its luster. But better than all that, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you where thieves cannot break in. My friends, make no mistake. You and I cannot take anything out of this world that we cannot fit in our God-shaped heart. That's why Peter continues and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You and I are guarded by God's power. And we're guarded by in two ways. First of all, we're guarded as if by soldiers around us, protecting us from invaders from the outside. Only in this case, God is our guard, and there is no one who can take us out of his hand. But secondly, we are guarded as if by a guardrail that keeps cars on the road and from sliding off and getting even greater danger. I don't know about you, but I have felt like my life was out of control sometimes, and I was very thankful to have that guardrail. Amen. Now, what does God use to keep us from going off the cliff or from being kidnapped by our enemy? What is the means that God uses this for this guarding? It's our faith. Your trust in the promises of God is what guards you. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 12.9, he says that our faith is a gift. And this gift is from God. It is not of works so that no one can boast. Indeed, your faith is defended and upheld and guarded by God so that you are secure. Better than Fort Knox. And that is why you can trust your living hope. Well, Maybe you're thinking right now, I'm not afraid of being kidnapped. Okay, 
well, how about being kidnapped by your own sinful flesh? What about your own sinful heart? How often do you believe that your problems are caused by someone else? It's your wife's fault every day when you come home and you're grumpy. It's your husband's fault because your kids don't have consistent discipline. Or how often do we slip unconsciously or otherwise into that same old sin? There's just too many advertisements that make my fingers do the walking. Or there's just too many things happening and they make me lose my cool. What is it that we can use to defeat these defeaters? What can keep invaders out of our hearts and our car on the road? It is your faith, your trust in the promises of God for you in Christ. And that is why you can trust your living hope. Because you can trust a secure salvation, you have a living hope. Okay, great. We've been talking a lot about faith. But how do I get this faith? Where, where can I get the faith I need that God will use to guard me both from the outside and from the inside? There's only one way. Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the Word of Christ. My friends, this is why we're having our fall ministry fair right now. It's because you need Scripture put into your life. That's why we have our Grace Seminary classes. That's why we have our small groups. So you can get Scripture into your heart so that you'll know what these promises are so then you can start living them. And that's why we have uh, children's ministry and Awana and our various Sunday hospitality ministries so you can take this Scripture input and bring it out. How hard is it to make coffee or smile at people as you greet them on Sunday in one of our various greeting ministries? Don't be deceived. You will not have that God-guarded and Bible-strengthened faith until you have both input from the Scriptures and they work out through you, through your fingertips, through your shoe leather. And my friends, it is in this way that we can live in such a way that we trust our living hope. Trust in your living hope to step out of your so-called comfort zone and take radical risks of God-glorifying resolve to strengthen your faith. We do this when we trust in our secure salvation. And we do this, according to Peter, when we rejoice in our fiery trials. Now here, Peter does something remarkable. In verses 6 and 7, what we see is that he equates this faith with the salvation that will be revealed in the last time. Well, that's not so remarkable. You say, I've known that connection for years. But in 6 and 7, he applies this salvation to this life right now. And not only does he apply the salvation to this life, but he also applies it to the very worst aspects of this life when we are grieved by various trials. Let's see that in verses 6 and 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, 
if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You can trust your living hope. Because you have this living hope, you can rejoice in your fiery trials. Now, listen, Peter tells us that we have an absolute secure salvation. If you have already repented of your sins and trusted God's promises for you, then your salvation is secure. God has chosen it for you. God has won it. God is protecting it for you till the day of Christ Jesus. And as we're going to see right here, God is refining that faith through your trials in this life so that in the midst of your grief, you can rejoice. Now, interestingly enough, I I think this is a great note. This phrase, in this you rejoice, can be understood as the ESV translates it. It translates it with the idea of you are rejoicing because of your salvation. But the exact same word can be understood in a slightly different context to be an imperative. You must rejoice or I'm telling you to rejoice because of your salvation. Now, I think personally that the ESV editors translated it the way they did because they know us. If someone told you, you have to eat ice cream at Doc Bernstein's today, you'd say, no way. Wouldn't you? Oh, God, save our stubborn hearts. But immediately, in the midst of this command declaration, Paul, or excuse me, Peter raises a problem. Because the polar opposite of rejoice is grieved. And we grieve because of our trials. So Peter, if we grieve because of our trials, where's your salvation? The salvation is the rejoicing in the trial while grieving. The salvation is rejoicing in the trial while you are still grieving. The salvation is looking squarely in the face of that trial and recognizing it as a messenger from God to do, among other things, test that faith that God Himself is guarding so that you will know that your faith will stand because God is making you to stand. You see, we're not masochists. We don't like pain and we're not denying that our trials hurt they frustrate they afflict that's why peter tells us you can't do this on your own i can't do this on my own billy graham can't do this on his own it is only by faith the faith that god guards and that your prayer saturated time in his word strengthens This trusting the living hope, this trusting the promises of God for you in Christ is what will enable you to go through the trials that will inevitably come. And while you are grieving, 
in Christ you will rejoice. When you face your next trial, you can trust the living hope inside you because you know that you know that you know that God is guarding that hope by the faith that He puts in your heart. So, what do you do? You strengthen this faith by preaching these promises into your heart. We have the first one. In Philippians 1.6, you can be confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Hebrews 13.5, you can bet on the fact that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Romans 8.31, you can put your life on the line that God is for you and not against you. And in Matthew 28.18, you can be absolutely sure that Jesus is with you. Always, even to the end of the age. You can trust the promises of God for you. You can trust these very specific promises of God for you in Christ so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, these trials that we go through, these trials that we go through and God gives us the grace to win, demonstrate your faith to, among others, yourself. And this kind of tested, genuine faith is more precious than gold, far more valuable than a ton of pure gold. But gold doesn't perish. If what you have is reasonably pure gold, it will last several hundred years under tons of salt water. Gold will survive several millennia under sand and pyramids. Gold doesn't perish. But our hope in it does. Because when you are on your deathbed, even if that deathbed is made out of solid gold, it won't help you overcome cancer. It won't help you overcome heart disease. It certainly won't help you overcome the difficulties, the fear, the anxiety that comes from wayward children. God's promises does that. Trust God's promises. So given this, given what is in every single human being's future, what is more precious than gold? Salvation. A living hope that is guarded by God through your faith that is itself a gift from God. Confidence in whatever trial you are going through. That is what is better than a mountain of gold. Trust your living hope. Because you have a living hope, you can rejoice in your fiery trials. So, the next question that we have to ask of this text is how do I get it? How do I begin experiencing this bounty? How do I get it into my heart right now so that I don't have to wait till I'm on my deathbed? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. How perceptive of you. 
Peter tells us in verses 8 and 9, and using these verses, I want to give us a picture. I want to give us a mental tool so that you can use it when you go through your next trial. We found out, first of all, that we need to trust in our secure foundation. Then we learn to rejoice in our fiery trials. And now we learn to swim against the current. Verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Picture yourself for a moment swimming upstream against the mighty Mississippi. You have a long swim ahead of you. I stole this image from John Piper. He says, True Christianity is like swimming upstream in a river of godlessness. For us, secular American godlessness. We swim with the stroke of love to Christ and the stroke of faith in Christ and the stroke of joy in Christ. And while we swim, we do not get swept away with the godless toward the terrible cataracts of judgment downriver. Of course, while we're not swimming, there's no staying stationary if you're swimming upstream. Exercise your faith that was given and guarded by God and strengthened by your prayerful time in His Word. And do this by loving Christ, believing Christ, and rejoicing in Christ. You love, trust, rejoice. Love, trust, rejoice. Secular American godlessness is a bane in the church as well as in the streets because it causes you and me to forsake our time alone with God. It leads us to make excuses instead of making time to pray. It leads us to forget that no one ever learned to pray except by praying. It leads us to forget that we are physical beings and what we do physically in worship matters. My friends, you can trust your living hope by reminding yourself to love, trust, and rejoice while you're going to His Word in your trials. Because you have a living hope, you can swim against the current. In the summer of 1984, I was 12 years old. And it was my first 10-day, 50-mile backpacking trip. On day four, we came to this violently rushing river. It wasn't that the river was so deep, but we were on the rock face of the Sierra Nevadas, and we frankly weren't really sure how to get across this river. So we took our biggest guy and we tied a rope around him and we let him clamber across these rocks. I don't know how he made it, but he made it. And he tied a rope to a rock on the other side, tossed the rope back over to us, and we made a rock bridge and we shimmied our way across this violent stream. Now, Given my close friendship with swimming that you already know about, 
shimmying across this rope was much more pleasant to me than trying my luck with the water. Though unsteady, holding on to the rope against a current more powerful than I am was able to withstand gave me courage to do what I needed to do. Holding on to your living hope. Holding on to Jesus by going to His Word and trusting His promises there is what will give you the courage to do what you know that you must do the next time you face temptation. Grasp your living hope's hand. Grab Jesus' hand by prayerfully living in His Word and then trusting His promises like your life depends on it. Because it does. Do it, though it is frowned upon in the stream that we fight against every day of people going down to the cataracts of judgment. Trust your living hope. Lord Jesus, you are our living hope. Help us to look to you, to find you faithful, to find you gracious so that we can have a help in our time of need. Give us, Lord, your grace so that we can withstand the current that is pressing against us every day. Bless us, Jesus, so that we will be a blessing. Amen.